the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. And to this point, we have uh, established through the, the epistle that both man, the man that's born in sin and lives in sin, and by that I mean in outward wicked sins, he's lost and undone as well as the one born in church and raised in religion and carrying a Bible, they are lost and undone as well. Both need the same salvation. That salvation's not found in the law. It's not found in doing better. It's not found in good works. But that salvation's found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And that is, <clears throat> that is obtained not by works either. But as he's just covered in chapter 4, Abraham, David, and all of the Old Testament, they received this salvation by faith just as we receive by faith. And so in chapter 5, so we have realized the lost condition by the law. We've been drawn by the power of God to trust in Christ by faith and therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus' work and His work alone, it does not say through our Lord Jesus and something that I do or that I am continually doing or that I'm required to do on and on, but the work of the Lord Jesus Christ was sufficient that the sinner could be at peace with God. And remembering this, that we were, and we're going to see in just a couple verses, we were enemies to God, and we were opposed to Him, and the law and the judgment of God was opposed to us. But you know, through the Lord Jesus, that sacrifice that the Lord provided for our salvation was sufficient to make peace between the sinner that trusts in Christ by faith and God Himself. And the sinner today that is born again by the operation of the hand of God. And I feel like we ought to say this and say it often. Not a head knowledge, not a belief in the mind, not a, well, I think Jesus rose from the dead, not a, well, I believe the Bible, but a salvation that's brought about by the hand of God regenerating the man by the Holy Ghost of God and by the Gospel. A new creature born by the power of God into the kingdom. Those sinners, they don't have to fear God's judgment any longer. But they are at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access. And let's say this before we hurry on. And we talked about these last time. But I don't have to maintain peace with God with my life from my salvation onward. Could you maintain peace with God? Having seen what we've seen about the law and God's righteousness and the perfection that's required, it's impossible that saved people through their life could maintain it. We would, we would lose that in a heartbeat. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So by grace are we saved, and by grace do we stand. We looked last time at that verse in John 1 that 
Jesus' grace for grace. There was grace given unto the sinner that he might understand and be convicted of his sin and of the righteousness of God and of the judgment to come and that he might be brought into the kingdom of God and be born again. That was grace that brought and enabled all of that to happen because a dead person's not going to come to the gospel. There must be grace there that quickens the dead that they can hear, believe, and be born again. So there was grace for that, but God's given us, through Jesus, grace for grace. He doesn't give us grace and save us and leave us on our own, but also through Jesus, not only am I at peace with God, but the church, the born again, has access to grace to stand in day by day. A continual flow of grace from the throne of God brought to the church, the born again, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace for grace. He told Paul when Paul prayed thrice for the thorn in the flesh to depart from him, he said, Paul, my grace is sufficient. I will give you the power to go on and to overcome even with the thorn in your flesh. You know how Paul had access to grace to go onward through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all through the Lord. We have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So the hope, that expectation, not I hope it don't rain tomorrow, and that being what we desire and we're expressing what we want, but we've got no promise of that. Not that kind of hope. But what the Word of God, when you read hope in the Word, the the Word means an expectation. The church has an expectation of the glory of God. And that through all things, the church can have peace. And Peter says, and we won't say it as good as Peter said it, whom having not seen, ye love. In whom though now ye see him not, yet believing... Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So we, we've never seen the Lord Jesus. Never laid eyes on Him. No, nobody here has. Nobody for 2,000 years has laid eyes on the Lord Jesus. But you know in them that are born again, maybe this is silly to somebody that's lost, but to somebody that God has saved, there is in their inward man a love and an affection for the Lord Jesus Christ, somebody they've never seen in the flesh before at all. But you know the church, through that love, through that affection, and through that work of God, the church can rejoice because they've got an expectation of deliverance from the evil of this world, from the wickedness of their own person, and from the suffering of this life into the glory of God. The church has an expectation. It's not I hope that I get to go to heaven or I think I will. But the church, the born again, they have an expectation of God's deliverance in the end as well as day by day. The grace wherein we stand, not just at the end, but grace to stand today through it all. And not only so, So the grace wherein we stand, 
And in the, the good things of this life, when things are good, it's very easy to rejoice in the glory of God. When the bank account's good, when the family's good, when all of my natural life's in order, it's easy for me to praise God and tell you just how blessed that I've been through God's hand. But not only so. Not only when things are good. Not only so, but we glory in tribulation also. Not only can the church rejoice when things are good and life is blessed, but the church can rejoice in tribulation. The word means pressure or affliction. The church can joy in tribulation also. When things are not well in the flesh. When things are difficult And there's a purpose in all these things. Not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. So there is a growing process that's going on. You know, the Word of God all through the New Testament, and you'll see pictures of it in the Old as well. The church, the born again, they're not saved and automatically they're full strength and ready to go to war. When God brought the children of Israel in to Canaan's land across Jordan, they didn't automatically take over all of Canaan. God didn't run everybody out instantly and they just move right in. But there was a warfare and a fight that was left for them, but God was with them through it. Well, the church is not saved and made perfect men automatically, very far from it. There's a growing process that God's left us to fight and war not against people, but against our own self. Thought even praying how that God, to save me, had to pull down the very strongholds of the devil that was established in my mind and in my heart. What I thought what I believed, what I was convinced of, though all of it was a lie, God had to pull that down to bring me to a place that I would even see a need of salvation. Well, there's more strongholds. There's more traditions. There's more thoughts. There's more opinions. There's more habits that need to be pulled down in our life. And therein, God's left us to fight, to war, and a battle against the outward man, and God's working through all things as well to bring about this growth. But you know, if we're honest, now if I'm honest, I want everything to be well. I want it to be well all the time. But you let it go well. And I believe if we could draw a graph, the lines would be polar opposites. As things get better, my desire and my prayer life, and my walk for the Lord goes the other way. And as tribulation and affliction comes, and the goodness of the natural life goes down, my relationship towards God, I begin to desire Him and seek after Him more and more. That's the nature of man. So why is there tribulation? Why is there trouble? And you know, we may never know why, but I believe here and in a couple other scriptures, we'll be able to see the purpose of these things. All things are under the control of God. God brings about 
and produces all things. Does God bring forth evil? He says in Amos, I believe, shall there be evil in the city and the Lord hath not done it. God is in control of all things, good and evil. God's in control of Satan himself. And so, not only so, but we glory in tribulation. God has gave the church something that even when the flesh is in affliction and tribulation, they've got something that they can glory in. As Paul and Silas were despised and beaten with uh, stripes and chained up in the inner prison and their flesh is suffering and they're in you know, prison then, it wouldn't, it's not like it is today. It was prison. It's not a motel stay. They're locked up in chains in prison with their backs probably still bleeding. They were able to sing and give glory to God, certainly not about how they were faring in the flesh. They wouldn't thank God for the food that they were eating and for the health that they had and for the, uh, the blessings of life that God had given them. They didn't have any of that. They were suffering in tribulation and yet they could sing praise to God because God had delivered them from sin and they had hope and deliverance from all things one day. That Paul could be a prisoner in Caesar's house looking, Paul was looking down the road in his life and the guillotine was just a few days ahead for him. He said, Timothy, come quickly. Bring what you're going to bring. I want to see you because I'm ready to be offered. Even as his head was about to be taken off of him, Paul had something to glory in. He was going to be with a Savior that had plucked him out of sin and placed him in his kingdom. Not only so, we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation, so affliction, tribulation worketh patience. So patience means cheerful or hopeful endurance. So by enduring, by going through tribulation, we learn to cheerfully endure. I learn through tribulation that God is in control, that His purpose will be served, and that God will deliver by grace and by His power. Worketh patience and patience experience. That means tested, trustiness, or proof. So that tribulation worketh patience, cheerful endurance. We'll look at another scripture or two in a minute. Let's get what he's saying. That brings me to a place of patience, of cheerful endurance. And that endurance, that cheerful endurance brings me to a place of experience. Now, you think about Abraham. God didn't call Abraham and said, go offer your son the first day. There was a growing that was going to take place. He called him out of his homeland. He made a promise. And after Abraham's grown, now he's grown quite a bit, he's going to be called out. He's going to deliver Lot from the hand of the five kings. He's promised a seed. He sends Ishmael out. He receives the promise of God. And at this time, God says, go and sacrifice. 
He's ready to go sacrifice him because he says, I'm so sure that God's going to carry through with his promise if Isaac dies, God will raise him from the dead. Nobody that we are told of had been resurrected at that point. There had never been a resurrection up to Abraham's day. And Abraham is so convinced. Now what promise did he have? That through Isaac and Isaac's seed, all the world's going to be blessed. You know, he held to the promise that God's going to carry that promise through and I'm so sure of it. If I kill him on the altar, God will resurrect him to keep his promise. But he didn't get to that in one day. He learned through experience that test, that proof. Sure, the afflictions, they prove us. But I tell you what Abraham had learned. He had learned that God and His power and His ability and His promise was absolutely sure and he learned it through affliction. As well as Moses who was raised in Pharaoh's house went out to the backside of the desert and wandered in the desert with a sheep for 40 years. And God called him and Moses said, I can't go speak. I'm unable to speak. I need a spokesman. God told him to take Aaron and let Aaron speak. Moses was afraid, fearful. And I'm not able to do that. But in just a little while, Moses is going to stand before Pharaoh and Moses is going to say, the firstborn in every house is going to perish. There was a growing that took place. And David, the young man, he didn't go fight Goliath day one either. But he was with a sheep and the Lord brought a lion and the Lord brought a bear. And David fought both of those and slew them. And I think David's words is evidence of what we're saying. He, he was ready to go fight Goliath. And Saul said, are you sure about this? And David said, God's delivered the bear and God's delivered the lion. This man's going to be no match for God. God will deliver him to me as well too. David had tried, proven God's power and had grown to a place that he could go face this warrior and was unafraid. But now if there had never been any testing, if God had never sent the lion or the bear, and David had no experience with God, it would have been much more difficult for facing Goliath. But God's preparing David when he's out with the sheep. God's preparing Moses while he's wandering in the wilderness. God's preparing Abraham when He calls him out of his homeland. God's working through all things that these men would have the experience, the patience, and the hope in God Himself that they would accomplish the work that He has for them to accomplish. Experience, hope. So this experience, this testing... This proof, it brings hope to anticipate with pleasure expectation. So David, who had suffered tribulation, and now don't you think 
a 15, 16 year old man when the bear come out. Don't you think that there was fear? And don't you reckon there was a fight there as well? That tribulation and that proving, that brought David to a place that as he spoke with Saul, he said, this man is going to die. And David told Goliath, I'm going to feed your carcass to the fowls of the air this day. He had an, an expectation. God has delivered before and God will deliver again. And here, Abraham, he's told to offer Isaac. He, Abraham could say, God has delivered all that he's promised in my life before. And if I kill Isaac, I'm convinced that God will deliver again. Paul the Apostle, who had suffered through great sufferings naturally in this life, he's coming down to the end that his head's going to be taken off. And Paul could say, I'm not ashamed. I know who I've believed in. I know where my trust is. I've proven Him through this life. And I'm convinced and ready to be offered because God's going to deliver me again. Be the final deliverance one day. But know this, that through tribulation, we grow. Through tribulation, we look to God. Through tribulation, patience and cheerful endurance is wrought in our life. I don't know that Job ever was told why that he suffered, but I believe you could say this, he grew in it. And I don't know that we'll ever know why that we suffer as God's saying, well, and that's what we want. We want God to say, well, you did this, so I'm going to bring this on you. In Hebrews chapter 12, Verse number 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now I realize, I realize that this is taken, I get out of line, God whips me. I agree. I agree in that completely. But the word chastening here, he chasteneth, that word means training up a child. Scourging means a beating. Why say both of those if they mean the same exact thing? No, you know what I do? And I believe all of you parents do it as well. Everything is not punishment when you're training up a child, is it? There's times that they're out of line and they need a scourging. But there's times that you're training them and it's not discipline. It's not anger. But you're doing your duty to train them how to have manners, how to work, how to live in this world properly. Well, God is chastening. He's training up His children and making them into the men and women that they ought to be in this world. God is forming and fashioning a church really after the image of the Son of God. So, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Does God have?
have a son that he's not training? He's training all of his children. And if there's one that's without training, he says here that they're bastards and not sons. Well, that's a bad word. Well, it it may be a bad word in the eyes of our world today. It's in the book. And the definition of it is a person that does not know who their father is. So here's people claiming to be God's children. God says they're bastards. They don't know who their father really is. But they don't belong to me. And so furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live. For they verily for a few days chastened us with their, after their own pleasure, but He for our profit that we might be partakers of His holiness. So mom and dad, they chastened us as they saw fit and as it pleased them. When they thought we needed one, they chastened us. When they thought we didn't, they didn't. Maybe one with two or three kids. Maybe one got more chastening than the other. That was at the discretion of the parents. They did it for their own pleasure as they saw fit. Well, know this. God's not like me. God's not like you. God's looking at His children. Now, we're talking about a people that He saved, and we're going to get to that Scripture in a minute. But these are God's children that He chose out of the world to bring into His family, He's looking to direct them in the manner that they could partake of His holiness in this world. A people that's set apart for His use and for His glory in this life. So, patience, experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. So this working through tribulation, the learning of cheerful endurance. Now how can somebody cheerfully endure tribulation? Because they have experience. They know God and that the end of God, as he says in James, we have the benefit of hindsight We know the whole story of Job. And James sums it up saying, we know the end of God, that He's pitiful, that He's merciful, that He's looking out for His children. And through experience, we have hope and expectation of God's deliverance and help in this life. And hope maketh not ashamed. The church... Let's let's look in Job 19. Now let's put ourselves in Job's place here as best we can. Job has literally lost everything that he's got, including his health. And his friends are here, and they're making a mockery of him and accusing him of all manner of sin that Job has not committed. But they're accusing him. They're dragging him through the, the muck and the mire, and they're downing him. They're wanting him to repent. But he's not done anything that they're accusing him of. So in Job 19, verse number 25, For I know 
that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So Job's got a hope, and that hope doesn't make him ashamed. That word means to be disgraced. The world, the devil, would like the church to be disgraced and ashamed of their God, of the testimony of God, of the power of God. But the hope that the church has in their heart and the love of God that's shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, they're not ashamed of the sufferings that they endure. They're not ashamed of the tribulation the expectation of the deliverance of God and you know maybe people get tired of it how do do they know how do they have that expectation because the Holy Ghost is given to us and shed abroad in our hearts by the indwelling power of the Spirit of God the children of God know that they're children he says later on here in Romans, that He's given unto us the Spirit, crying, Abba, Father. God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Outside of the Holy Ghost, there is no hope. There is no uh, looking for deliverance. No, we're going to be ashamed one day without the Holy Ghost of God will be cast down, will be cast out into outer darkness. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus here that God could help them grow in understanding of the love that God has for them in that they're in the family of God. We've got the four measurements. There's only three dimensions here, length, width, and height. But he gives us four, length, width, breadth, and height. As I stand here, there's a height above me, there's a depth below me, there's a length and there's a width in every direction. The church is surrounded by the love, the grace, and the understanding of God Almighty. Now what's the church got to be ashamed, to be disgraced, to be cast down about when they've got a God that loves them so? The devil would like to lie and convince you that God does not care for you. No chastening at the present seemeth to be joyous. There's not a child that wants his own way that thinks happy of you correcting and turning him in another way. That that is against the power and the nature of mankind. Man wants to rebel. 
Well, the flesh would like to rebel against God as well. And Satan is in rebellion against God as we speak. And he would like to cause the children of God to doubt in Philippians. One more place. Philippians chapter 4 verse 12. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So where's he abounding at? In the power of the glory of God by the Holy Spirit shed abroad in his hearts. I don't know that Paul ever abounded in the flesh after that he was saved. I sure don't read of Paul ever abounding in the flesh. I don't read of times that life was just wonderful and he was rich and he had what he wanted. I read the exact opposite of Paul. I can read a list that the Holy Ghost bore witness to of the sufferings the man endured for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he knows how to both abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. You know who's getting the glory? God gets the glory in all things. The church's endurance is a testimony to the work of God that's in the heart. And not just endurance. Cheerful endurance with an expectation of the glory of God. Now you talk about a testimony. The cheerful endurance in tribulation. Now there wasn't much endurance when we first got saved. But God would like for us to grow. Become wiser. Stronger. More dependent in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I can do all things. Paul was at a place, he had learned, he had learned how to abound, how to be abased, how to be in any situation because his hope and his trust, his expectation was that God's brought me here for a purpose and we will endure and go onward trusting God's hand. Hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Now a lot of times when you look at this chapter, when you hear this chapter preached, it's always picked up in verse 6. And when you hear quoted out of this chapter, it starts in verse 6. But this all goes together. So he's talking about the growth of the saints through tribulation and the Holy Ghost given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Where were we without strength? That's feeble, weak, no ability, diseased. Christ died for the ungodly. Now, when we think about who's going to be saved, it's always the best. I mean, that's the way man thinks that Christ died to save the best. The good living people, the hard workers, and those that are laboring for it. But the Word of God tells me that in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for the impious, the irreverent, and the wicked. 
The Lord Jesus came. So you talk about suffering and enduring. The Lord Jesus came. And how do we know? How do we know in tribulation that God still loves us? The devil says, well, if God loved, God would do this. If God loved, He'd do this and fix it. That's the devil. It is. That's the devil. How do we know God loves? Because when we were without strength, when we were unable to help ourselves under the power of Satan and under the deception of sin, when we were in the bounds of wickedness and the God's truth is we were ungodly, irreverent, no reverence for God nor God's Word. God could speak. We could hear it quoted. Somebody could tell us this is what God says and I'll speak for me. I was completely irreverent to what God said. I did not care what the Bible said and it would have made me angry for somebody to correct me with what the Bible said. Impious. No piety towards God. No recognition of God's authority or power over me in this life. God ain't going to tell me what to do. He's not my ruler. Who do they think they are? And wicked. My desire was to be wicked. And in my mind, I wanted to be more wicked. That's the way man is. Man wants to prove his point. Well, here we are, ungodly, wicked, impious, and irreverent towards God, and without strength, no ability to do anything about it. That's who I was. See, I've said before, if somebody else is pumping you full of deceit and lies, you might be able to stop them. But when it's you... When that's you and your thoughts and your opinions that's a curse to you, how can you overcome yourself? No, we were without strength. We could not come to God. We were like in Ezekiel forty or Ezekiel 16, very familiar scripture, the infant laying in the field, polluted in blood, laid out there and forgotten, and left to die. There's where mankind was without strength and unable to help itself. Without strength and unable to do one thing. You know what the end of that's going to be? If you laid one in the field, what's the end of that going to be? Every single time. It's impossible for the child to survive on its own. The only way that there can be a child laid out in a field and it live is that somebody would have compassion on the child and take it in. You know, that's what the Lord Jesus did. There we were, wicked, irreverent, impious, hateful towards God, hateful towards His Word, unable to do anything about it, and God is going to give the Lord Jesus to die for people in that condition that they could be delivered from the judgment of sin and ungodliness. Not when we were pious 
And when we were looking for God to speak to us, when we were seeking God's face and doing our best to live for Him, God gave Jesus. No. God gave Jesus for ungodly people that were spouting off at the mouth about Him, that desired to rebel against His Word, that was looking to rebel against the commandment of God. God gave Jesus to die for them. And there we are. Wicked. Sinful. Going away from God. And Jesus died for us then. When we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. He says in Titus, Titus chapter 3, verse 3, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lust and pleasures, living in malice, and envy, hateful, and hating one another. There is the infant in the field. That was who I was. That was my nature. That was my desire. That's the way I wanted to be. And the truth is, my desire, I wanted to be more like that. And yet, I'm laid in the field helpless to come out of that state, but the first word of the fourth verse in Titus chapter 3, but there's going to be an intervention made here. There we are who were sometimes foolish and in sin, but after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. God intervened in the infant's life laying in the field. And to you that are saved, you are saved because God intervened in your life and gave His Son that you could be. Why would Jesus die for you? You answer that. I'll let you raise your hand. If you can tell me one good reason when you were in sin that God should have gave His Son to die for you. Did you give Him one good reason? Now we were corrupt, weren't we? We had no desire to hear God's Word nor to come to God. We didn't have one ounce of care whatsoever about what God said and about what God's desire for us was. There was no reason, but God had compassion anyway. God said, I'm going to intervene because that one, they can't help themselves. The ungodly, that one surely... I believe that's what we would say if we saw a woman laid in the ditch going home after church. We'd say, that young one's going to die laying there. Let's get that up and let's bring that in. Let's, let's find somebody 
to help that young and that it not die. That's what God said about us. But you know, I wasn't no little infant. I was a hardened, wicked sinner. But I was going to die just like the infant. And God said, let's give Jesus to die for that man that we might pull him out of the ditch and out of the power of Satan and that he might have life. After the kindness and love of God. Why did God give His Son Jesus? Because He was compassionate and He loved us. You got any doubt about that? God gave His Son only because He loved us. So now when the devil says if God loved, you don't have to go any farther than right here. The kindness and love of God gave His Son Jesus for us when we were in sin. And the Lord Jesus Himself says, no greater love. We'll look at that in a little while. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Just for a minute, I want to think about the words in due time. Now the Lord Jesus was promised Depending on who you speak to, maybe from Adam until Jesus, 4,000 years, 3,000 years, somewhere in there. Why was it that God waited that long until He sent His Son Jesus? I, I don't have any, and you don't have any answer for that either. But we know this, in due time, and in the fullness of time, God sent His Son Jesus to be born, and to give His life. Now, I realize in Ezekiel 36, He tells us there in verse 31 that you'll loathe your own selves. Those that God saves, they will despise the person that they once were. I have found for me, I've found that to be the case. I've thought back on the things that I've done and I've been very sorry and very loathsome of the person that I used to be. I've looked back on the way I've treated people, and I've been very loathsome for the way that I treated people before the Lord saved me. That's the nature of man. That is the way it is when God saves them, they'll loathe their own selves. But know this now, you couldn't do anything about that. It's natural in salvation to loathe the man you used to be, but you could do nothing to prevent that and you could do nothing to change that. That's who you were under the power of Satan. And do you know when you got saved? In due time. In the fullness of time, God revealed His Son. God could have saved me when I was four or five years old. He could have. But He did not reveal His Son in me at that point. And Cotton, who was 60, he could have been saved at 10 had God revealed His Son. But God's purpose being carried out in all things, know this, I wish I could have got saved younger, amen, because I despise what I was. But we were saved in God's time according to God's will. In Galatians, we'll read one more place, and I'm, I know I'm over time. 
But I'd like to finish this verse before we stop. Galatians chapter 1, verse number 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. When was Paul saved? Now, he was set apart from his mother's womb. He'll tell us in Ephesians 1 that he was elect from before the foundation of the world. Through the foreknowledge of God, he was selected by God to be saved. Set apart from his mother's womb. But when did Paul get saved? When it pleased God. To reveal his son in me. You know when people are going to get saved? When God decides to save them. Now, that's the truth. When God decides to deliver them, well, I I wish that I would have come to it earlier. You could not have come to it earlier. Remember what you were? You were in sin. And your desire was for sin. But God gave His Son Jesus while you were in that condition that you might be saved. That's all that's on our heart. Anybody, anything you'd like to add?